This is episode 28 of the Brick and Data podcast, a podcast dedicated to retail news, analytics, and tech. and welcome to another episode of the Brick and Data podcast. This is Todd Harris, and as always, we have Jose Chan. For this episode, we are fortunate to be joined by Doug Stevens, retail futurist, book author, and founder of Retail Profit, a consultancy specializing in the forecasting and articulation of future trends in retailing and consumer behavior. Prior to founding Retail Profit, Doug spent over 20 years in the retail industry holding senior international roles including the leadership of one of New York City's most historic retail chains. Doug's intellectual work and thinking have influenced many of the world's best-known retailers, agencies, brands, including Walmart, Google, Home Depot, Disney, BMW, Coca-Cola, and Intel. He is the author of two groundbreaking books, one of which we're going to be talking a little bit about today. Um, One is The Retail Revival, Reimagining Business for the New Age of Consumerism, and the newer one is Reengineering Retail, the Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World. So we'll be talking about that second one, as I mentioned before. So, Doug, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you with us today. Todd, Jose, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, Doug. So I, to get started with um, our, our conversation today, um, for our audience, can you explain uh, the general premise of uh, your new book, Reengineering Retail? Sure. So reengineering retail really came off the, the 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 concept or the precept for the book really came off a statement that was made uh, going back to 2013 by Mark Andreessen. Uh, Mark Andreessen, of course, being the the uh, uh, Silicon Valley luminary, um, major investor, uh, one half of Andreessen Horowitz, the uh, Silicon Valley uh, uh, venture cap firm, and. Uh, Andreessen was interviewed in 2013, and in the interview, he was talking about something totally unrelated, really, to retail. And then all of a sudden, he sort of veered onto retail, and he basically said that conventional retail is a dead model, uh, that it makes no sense, that physical stores make no sense, and that it was, uh, as an economic model, it was just completely untenable, and that eventually we were going to buy everything online. That was basically the tenor of what he was saying. And that really intrigued me. And of course, it sparked a lot of debate in the industry. And so I really decided to kind of pursue that that thinking that, you know, to really explore Andreessen's thinking to its furthest extent and explore what the future of online looked like and what that meant for the future of brick and mortar and physical spaces and really sought to try and answer the question, is retail as we know it? dead? Is it a thing of the past? And that was sort of the journey that I went on with reengineering retail. Wow. That, that's very timely uh, in, in, you know, the, the publication of the book, given the, the state of where we are today in retail. And now going back a little bit to your book, you, you devote a chapter to Walmart. And in that particular chapter, you write that, and here's a quote, the very customer that once paved Walmart's unprecedented path to retail domination had become one of its recent existential threats. Mm-hmm. So 
with this in mind, do you think the acquisition of Bonobos for $310 million U.S. million in June uh, is enough to capture this new customer? Or mm. what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so it's a good question. And just, just to sort of provide listeners with a little bit of background on what I meant by what I said in the book about Walmart. I mean, you know, to understand Walmart is to sort of step back and look at the genesis of that brand and to understand that Sam Walton was a man who really set out to serve what I would classify as being the average American consumer or North American consumer. And by average, I mean, you know, it was really part of this burgeoning middle class that was uh, consequent with the end of the Second World War. Uh, this was a time when you know, average people were going and buying houses and getting educations and, and putting their kids through school and, and life was fairly prosperous. And if you were a middle class union worker, you were doing all right. I mean, times were pretty good. Any any time between, say, 1946 and you could argue up to the 1980s. And that was really the bread and butter of Walmart. And unfortunately, you know, Post-1980, what we've seen is we've seen this massive polarization of income, massive polarization of wealth. Uh, we've seen classes sort of divide on both sides of the retail line. And Walmart has sort of found itself being the odd man out now. You know, it's it's serving a consumer that is declining in terms of their numbers and in terms of their uh, robustness. Uh, as a as a commercial entity, the second thing that really is you know Walmart's facing is a consumer that has largely been left behind by technology, and I, I say that because when we look at the data, Walmart customers tend to index very poorly to online shopping. So you have Walmart on one hand really pursuing online shopping and trying to become a, a, a greater entity in that in that sector and at the same time they're fighting against a consumer that doesn't really index really well to shopping online so your question you know uh, can can Amazon uh, or can Walmart rather go out and and buy that consumer can they by buying brands that are shopped by younger um, perhaps more affluent more tech savvy shoppers can they in fact jump rails and and start to serve that consumer um, you know, I, I'm not convinced. Uh, I think that I think that one of the things that is going to be an issue around the acquisitions that Walmart is making, whether we're talking about Jet.com or Bonobos or ModCloth or any of these startup cultures, is that the cultural gravity around Walmart is so significant that I think it's going to pull these brands into it. And I think it's going to assimilate these brands into its own culture. And it's really that Walmart culture, I think, that has been an impediment to it becoming popular with, with the younger generation of consumers. So uh, my, my feeling is that um, a, lot of, a lot of the problems that are going to be consequent with these acquisitions are going to be cultural problems. And I don't know that they're going to be able to get around those. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and usually, you know, when, when we speak of brick and mortar, uh, especially Walmart uh, being the biggest brick and mortar retailer um, changing over time, in the same breath, we always mention Amazon. So on the same day, stick, sticking to, to, to this um, narrative, Amazon uh, announced its acquisition of Whole Foods. This is the same day that um, Bonobos uh, was announced as an acquisition by Walmart. So do you think this is just the beginning of brick-and-mortar acquisition for Amazon? And what do you think this signals overall to the retail industry? 
Yeah, good question. You know, the the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon is is particularly interesting, and and I've done um, some some writing uh, around this this whole acquisition and and what it really means, in my opinion, anyway. Um, I mean, first of all, um, we have to understand that Amazon has been knocking at the door of the grocery industry for almost 10 years now, that it's it's been trying desperately to get into the category through Amazon Fresh, and it's not been entirely successful at doing that. They've rolled the program out in sort of a, a stop and start way, uh, but, but it hasn't really gained the traction that I know Jeff Bezos and team would like to have seen it gain. Part of the problem is, this, and it comes down to the logistics uh, and disciplines of of the grocery industry, they've had a tremendously difficult time actually shipping fresh food. and And some of that has to do with the fact that they don't have physical locations. So there there is in in the Whole Foods acquisition, there is the the more obvious path to grocery and and sort of unlocking that category. But there's something deeper in that, too. There's the notion that um, amazon is is primarily, in my opinion, not a retailer in a conventional sense. I believe that Amazon is a data technology and innovation company, and, and they happen to sell things across categories. And when you start to look at Amazon through that lens, when you start to consider that the most important thing to Amazon is really consumer data, that's when the grocery industry really starts to make sense. That's when the the, the frequency of transactions and the degree with, with which shoppers go to a grocery store one, two, three, sometimes, sometimes seven times a week, um, you think of the data throw that comes off that kind of activity. That is a massive boon for Amazon because once you start collecting data at that level of granularity on consumer preferences and choices, you can begin to correlate that data and you can begin to become very predictive about other aspects of the consumer's life. So I think that personally, I think that, that the Whole Foods acquisition was almost as much a data play as it was a category play to get into grocery. However, regardless of what I think or anyone else thinks, by making that acquisition, if in fact this comes together, Amazon will in fact become the fourth largest grocer in the United States, which is which is shocking. With one acquisition, they become the fourth largest. So it's really a call out to retailers in any category that says that, you know, if you're a furniture retailer, what's to stop Amazon from making a bid for, say, um, restoration hardware or a sure. pottery barn, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and in doing so, they could they could be become a massive player in that category overnight. So, uh, yeah, it, it, this, is, this could very well be, if Whole Foods is a success, it could be the beginning of something bigger. Well, um, you know, speaking of Amazon, Doug, today, uh, we'd be remiss not to recognize it. Today, July 11th, is Amazon Prime Day. Uh, soon to be maybe a national holiday, maybe not. <laughs> uh, you know, this is this is your Black Friday in the summer, and I think everyone's recognized it as that. It's becoming a habitual um, shopping holiday in a way, and mm -hmm. the event itself, uh, you know, outside of perhaps some of the technical glitches they had last year or was a year prior, I can't remember. Um, the event itself doesn't seem to be slowing down in terms of the offers and the traction and the and the powwow, uh, the pre the pre you know the pre event powwow that it gets from journalists and such. Um, so if you look at some traditional retailers like Carter's and Nike, for example, embracing Amazon in a way that a year or two years ago, no one would have thought, meaning, you know, Carter's is creating a special line of clothing just to sell on Amazon with mm -hmm. a, you know, you can't get it from Carter's website, but you can only get it on Amazon. Nike is selling shoes on Amazon uh, wholeheartedly. 
So are other retailers going to fall in line also? And does, you know, does Amazon Prime Day or the success of Amazon in general have anything to, to do with that? Well, Prime Day is really important. There's no question. And, you know, what I always find incredible about Prime Day is that every time it rolls around, um, it gets tremendous media coverage. You know, there's always mm-hmm. anticipation around, will it be bigger and better than last year? Will the deals be more spectacular? What will consumers think, you know? And and so the earned media that comes off this is just, a, you know, a goldmine uh, for Amazon. Yeah. The the purpose of Prime Day, albeit last year they did about a half a billion dollars in revenue on Prime Day, which is nothing to sneeze at. But I think the real underlying purpose of Prime Day is to get non-Prime consumers to become Prime members. I think that um, knowing that there is this exclusive sale taking place that you can only be privy to if you're a Prime member uh, is is a really you know enticing bait uh, to get consumers onto Prime. And once they're on Prime, I always say Prime is like the gateway drug to the heroin that is Amazon. You know that <laughs> when, once you're on Prime, you become uh, two and a half times more lucrative as a shopper for Amazon than you do if you're a non-Prime member. Um, so there's you know they they are a very very a powerful group of consumers. They um, spend more frequently and they spend more on average uh, than non-prime shoppers. So this this really, I think Prime Day is really a play at boosting membership. They've got over 80 million uh, members now. And um, it, it's really the, the keys to the kingdom, you know. And, and part of that, of course, is that it's not just about discounts and fast shipping. It's about access to video content, access to music content. You know, it's it's kind of this whole exclusive world. In terms of your question, you know, will will more and more brands and retailers run to Amazon to become part of the marketplace? Um, I think that's certainly the goal. Uh, it's certainly Amazon's goal. Uh, they, you know, they've had open meetings with brands to basically say, look, um, why go through layers of distribution and simply add unit costs to your product when you can go direct to consumer and use Amazon as the platform? They've been very open about saying that. Uh, having said that, again, if we go back to what is Amazon really? Is Amazon really a uh, is it a marketplace? Is it a retailer or is it a data company? What we have to understand is that Amazon watches what sells very, very closely uh, through its marketplace. And it is not in the least bit reluctant to take fast moving products from other brands and simply start making them. We've seen we've seen them do this with uh, computer components, with, uh, you know, clothing items. They have their own clothing line now. We've seen them do it with food items. So if you're a Nike or a Carter's, uh, it's play at your own risk. I mean, you can go in and you can try and capitalize on that marketplace, but be aware that your best selling items could become Amazon's private label products tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder what those agreements look like in the background, right? When they when they mm. ink that deal with Amazon, there's got to be something in there that's the catch, in a way. Maybe that's it. Absolutely. So I, I just want to kind of close that question off um, with a quote from your book that I was I was digging through some chapters, and uh, it, it's really it really nails it in terms of how Amazon has has impacted retail. And the quote is this. While most retailers are struggling to play checkers, Amazon has become a grandmaster of chess, always thinking several moves ahead in an effort to checkmate unwitting retailers. And I wasn't necessarily, you know, saying that in, in terms of Carter's or Nike, but it really is a uh, 
it, it really is an angle they're playing and they seem to be very successful at it so far so yeah indeed and and that's a pattern with amazon is you know the the, mm -hmm. the retail industry tends to be very linear in its thinking <clears throat> retailers tend to be very short-sighted they think from quarter to quarter from earnings report to earnings report and amazon of course has had the luxury uh, that has been afforded to them by their shareholders of looking much, much further ahead and, and thinking in a much more uh, lateral or tangential way. So it's, you know, when, when something comes along like a Whole Foods acquisition, the industry's tendency is to say, ah, Amazon wants to sell groceries. But, but once you, I think, really start to understand the character of Amazon and the way Jeff Bezos thinks, you start to understand that, no, it's, it's probably three moves beyond that. Like what he's really after is three moves beyond that. So it's trying to understand what, what are those three moves? That's the difficult part about strategizing against Amazon. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's a nice lead in into um, what you talk about in, in chapter five. So in the U.S., we know that brick and mortar stores generate 90% of retail sales uh, and the balance is uh, generated by e-com sales. Um, and in chapter five, you talk about online firms changing customer expectations by providing quick and easy delivery. And then you end the chapter by asking, uh, can retailers do anything to stop the feeding frenzy? So our, our question today is, um, what can retailers do to, to stop the feeding frenzy? So, you know, I think that the first step is really trying to understand how online shopping has become pervasive in consumers' lives and how it is literally rewiring a consumer's brain. Um, you know, I, I was talking with a group yesterday and I said, imagine if you were shopping on Amazon and you, you finished your shopping and you clicked checkout. And as soon as you click checkout, a clock appeared a timer appeared on your computer and it started counting down from 10 minutes and it said you have to wait 10 minutes before you can check out because there are other consumers in line in front of you on amazon you'd be you you'd you'd leave the site right you'd go and try and find something elsewhere or you'd just be really angry sure. and yet every day in the physical world we, we line up. We line up for gas. We line up for groceries. We line up to pay. We line up to return things. And we're so accustomed to lining up. Uh, but I, I think that things like that, the, the dissonance between our online experiences where things are easy, frictionless, where I can find information very easily, where I can watch video, I can see reviews about products, I can have all my questions answered with 100% certainty. The dissonance between that and physical experiences where, where you know, none of those things apply in the physical world in terms of shopping, are, that dissonance is going to become greater and greater and greater. And we're already seeing it. We're already seeing consumers say, look, I, if I don't need to go to a store, I won't. I'll shop online. It's that much easier. So I think retailers have to finally, once and for all, be really honest with themselves about that. What are the things where what are the moments of truth where you are just flat out failing your customers where you're making them do things or putting them through stresses that that they just don't want to be part of anymore and how can you fix what's broken you know it's i'll just tell you a really really quick um story that really sure. has has nothing to do with with retail at all but um like like both you guys i i, I travel quite a bit 
and so I, I wind up taking um, uh, a lot of trips with a particular airline, which which shall remain nameless. But <laughs> I get a lot of marketing material, obviously, as as a frequent flyer. I get a lot of marketing material from them. And I'm not sure what they spend in trying to market to me every year, but it's probably, you know, relatively significant. And when you multiply it by the number of people that are like me, it would become a really, really big number. But I got on a plane at one point. I was just flying down to Florida and I, I get on the plane. And I look to my left and there's my window is duct taped into basically I'm assuming it's duct taped into the plane. Like there's, there's duct tape in my window sure. and I'm assuming that's what's holding it to the plane. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm not an engineer. I'm not, I'm not a physicist or anything, but I'm assuming that duct taping a window in an airplane is probably not the safest thing. Right. So no. what's going through my mind is you're, you're spending all this money trying to entreat me to buy flights. You're spending all this marketing effort trying to gain more of my business. And yet somebody is walking past this duct taped window and assuming that that's just going to be okay, that that's going to be good for business. And I think in many ways, retailers have lots of broken windows in their businesses. Every time there's a bad fitting room experience, every time there's a bad cash out experience, every time your store is closed when the consumer needs it to be opened, every time you're out of stock on something they've driven 20 minutes to get, all of those things add up in the end to death by a thousand cuts, you know? So to your question, I think the first thing that retailers need to do is, is you know, really sort of recalibrate their expectations. You're not gonna change the world overnight. Fix what's broken. Fix the broken windows in your business first and then step back and say, where do we go from here? Uh, and you know, maybe at some point you'll tell us uh, <laughs> which airline this is. Maybe offline, right? Uh, offline, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll share it with you. Well, um, I mean, to go along with that, let's talk about experience, right? There's all this talk about you know shopping experience, customer experience, but creating a positive experience um, it's preferably without duct tape on windows is definitely critical for retailers. There's a lot of technology out there to facilitate this. Um, you know, some of it will stick. Some of it maybe won't. How should retailers evaluate these technologies that are right for them? I mean, I know part of your, I guess, one of your jobs, Doug, as part of retail profit is to advise, like we covered in the beginning to not just technologies, but strategies, et cetera. But I'm sure throughout those conversations, you know, the retailers are looking at technologies that say, hey, this is this will fix things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how does yeah. that blend into retail experience and how does that blend in overall, I guess, looking at the bigger picture strategy of, of when you speak to them? Yeah, it's, it, you know, keeping up with technology is one of the challenges now that retailers and, and certainly retail executives, whether they be marketing executives or, or CIOs, um, you know, that that's the challenge they're living with every day. And I can only imagine that, you know, every day it seems like there's something new. You know, this this month it's big data, uh, and then next month it's machine learning or artificial intelligence, or why don't we have bots on our customer service line, or why aren't we doing a better job of native advertising on Facebook? And I mean, imagine being a CMO or a CIO now; it must absolutely be mind-boggling. And I think part of the part of the problem in trying to chase technology is that it is so ephemeral that the things that are you know, important drivers of success this year may not be the same things that are important next year. 
the things that are activating certain aspects of an experience. I mean, it was only, you know, five, six, seven years ago, geolocation was like the big thing, right? Um, everyone was talking about um, uh, local marketing, geolocated marketing, uh, geolocation and notifications and that sort of thing. So, I mean, we've, we've progressed from that. That's almost just a, a, a part and parcel now of, of marketing, you know, um, this, this idea of, uh, of geospatial marketing. So it's a revolving door and it's always moving and it's very difficult to track. So what I say to brands is this, first of all, don't focus on the technology. If you're trying to understand which technologies are ultimately going to help you create better experiences, the first step is you have to decide what is the experience that you're trying to create. And that starts with something that a lot of retailers just don't do. And that's journey mapping. And, and it, it's a discipline. It's, it's, uh, it's an exercise that brands should be going through. And it's, uh, it's something that takes a lot of patience and fortitude to do. It's something that oftentimes works better if you have a degree of outside guidance or, or at least a neutral voice in the room to help guide you through the process. But it's essentially taking apart the customer's journey down to its most microscopic components and really understanding every single moment of truth along that journey. And within each of those moments of truth, identifying the opportunities to, to really uh, delight a customer or to remove friction from their shopping trip or to personalize that trip or to surprise them with something. So identifying all of those moments. And once you've gone through the really heavy lifting of that exercise, which believe me, it's a monumental task, but once you've done it, then you can step back and say, okay, within each of these moments of truth, which technologies could help us achieve our objective? whatever that objective is, if it's to personalize. Well, what, what technologies could we use in this moment to help personalize the custom, customer's experience? And once you start slotting in a general sense of, you know, what those moments are and the technologies or the platforms that could help you achieve them, then it becomes a lot easier to just go out on the open market and purchase the technology or suite of technologies that you need to bring that experience to life. But all too often what we're doing and what executives are doing is they're saying that here's a cool technology. Now let's work back to its application. How can it be used? And what happens is it, it winds up being uh, a novelty. It winds up being just something that we try and it's not really connected or associated to any other element of the experience. And as a consequence, it really doesn't go anywhere. And we and companies become frustrated doing that. So I always say, look, start with mapping the journey first and work back to the technology suite. Those are some great points for our retail audience. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely on point with um, the way things should be viewed in retail. And so in this, I think uh, retailers, to your point, have forgotten what they really are supposed to do, which is create that positive experience. So with this in mind, what are some retailers um, that are doing a great job at creating uh, a positive customer experience? And what do you think makes them unique? Well, the interesting word that you use there for me is, is unique. And I think that that's really one of the greatest challenges now that retailers face 
you know, if you go through your average regional mall and you walk through that mall, the number of stores that are likely to look and feel quite similar is astonishing these days. I mean, your local mall is, is largely filled with apparel stores, for one thing. And many of those apparel stores, save for maybe the logo above the entrance, are, are very, very similar. So being unique is part of the challenge, first and foremost. And when, when I look at retailers um, that, that I think are really moving the needle, what I see is I see a, a pattern. And the pattern is great retailers and great brands, frankly, in general, are looking at what I call the script in their category. Every category of merchandise has sort of a script of the way consumers generally experience that category. So if I were to say to you guys, um, hey, you know, we're going to go to a shoe store, we're going to buy some shoes, you would probably have in your mind, you could play a little movie about what that experience is probably going to be like based on your experience in going into other shoe stores. But what great retailers are doing is they're acknowledging that that script exists and then they're going out of their way to break it, to create a new way of shopping, a new way of buying the product, to really kind of um, arrest the customer's attention and surprise them right out of the gate by presenting something different. For example, if we just sort of take as an example, may not be a strictly retail example, but take as an example Tesla. And what Tesla did with car showrooms and saying, no, we're not going to have dealerships. We're not going to place these these showrooms on kind of these dusty roads outside the town or city. We're going to have them in uh, beautiful, high traffic luxury malls. We're going to have one car on display. And then we're going to display all of the options and finishes. You select the car in a totally different way. It's delivered in a totally different way. Oh, and by the way, we service the car while you're asleep at night in, in bed. Uh, we service it with a software update. So they, they took the, the typical script in the, in the auto industry and they completely broke that script. And that is really, you know, I mean, their product is one thing. Sure, it's, sure. A, little, it's a little different, but it's the way they sell the car that really endeared them to, uh, to their audience, to their unique set of consumers. I would also argue that, you know, you take a retailer... Um, like Perch, which I talk about in the book. Perch sells appliances, outdoor items, and uh, bathroom fixtures. And they looked at the way people typically buy these these products, whether it's at Home Depot or, or some other uh, you know, big box store. And they said, that's just not the way we're going to sell them. It's going to be totally different. So Perch showrooms have uh, every single product is plugged in or hooked up or it works. All of their bathroom shower heads are plumbed. They work. You can you can bring your bathing suit into the store and have a shower. You can come in and eat a meal, have a cup of coffee, talk to a chef that might be using the appliances. So they created a totally immersive, physical, kinetic, connected world of appliances that you could walk into and have a totally different experience than you'd find in a big box. Now, the, the upshot of that is Perch actually sells more per square foot than Apple stores do. When Apple has always been kind of the gold standard in terms of square foot sales, well, Perch, Perch actually outperforms them. So this works. When we change the script and we give customers something they don't expect, something that is, that is delightful and breaks from convention, it works. That's amazing. I mean, that's, I got to go check these guys out. I wonder where they're, uh, 
where their stores are. But uh, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, look them up online, perch, perch.com, P-I-R-C-H.com. And um, I think they've got about nine, nine, maybe 12 stores across the U.S. It's almost like some of these retailers, this is um, kind of extending what you're just talking about. It's almost like some retailers are going after that Disney experience, you know, the experience of enveloping you into, into the world that you've entered once you walk in their doors. Well, that's exactly right. And, and I actually you know, use, use a, a, a very similar phrase in the book that great retailers don't just give you a different sort of store to walk into. You literally feel like you're walking into a different world. There you, go. Uh, you know, it looks different. It sounds different. It smells different. I mean, and that's another thing, you know, appealing to consumers on, on multiple sensory levels, uh, you know, do something that you can't, you can't replicate online. You know, that a consumer walks in and they don't just see a beautiful store or an interesting store, but they actually hear it. They feel it. Uh, maybe they can even smell it. You know, all of that sensory activity is, is really important. And as we move forward and as consumers become more and more comfortable buying things online, which is increasing every day. You know, Alibaba.com on Singles Day last year sold 6,500 automobiles that nobody ever test drove. You know, nobody ever sat in those cars before they bought them. So <laughs> consumer confidence in buying things online is, is increasing rapidly. And in that world, we as retailers have to give consumers something that they can't find online. If we expect them to get off their sofa, put down their tablet and come to our store, there has to be something at the end of that journey that is absolutely immersive and uh, kinetically uh, pleasing. Otherwise, what's the point? So true. That's so true. So I, I wanted to move on to more of a, um, a question that reflects a little bit from a few, couple questions ago around the technology adoption. And I think as part of the question, I made an assumption that, um, uh, that retailers are generally slower at adopting technologies throughout the years that may have changed recently for various reasons. And, and that was the assumption I made. And maybe I should even start with that as, as a question to you is, do you feel that's changing or do you even feel to begin with that retailers have been slower or it could be more careful at adopting technologies uh, for, you know, either in stores, for back office, for, you know, operational stuff um, with with the main with the main lead in the main question here being, you know, how do they bring more innovation into their stores? How do they bring more innovation to their brand in general, um, perhaps after all the journey mapping stuff you were talking about? Yeah. Well, so, uh, yeah, I, I think your assessment of the industry is absolutely bang on. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and frankly, I don't know many people in the, in the retail industry that would disagree or, or try and defend uh, the degree to which the industry are, are laggards. And some of that goes back to, you know, if we step back, say, 50 years or so, and we look at sort of the, the nature of retail and, and why retail grew so rapidly, um, you know, part of it is that it was a distribution thing. You know, being in retail simply meant giving distribution or access to a particular market to a particular set of goods or a category of goods. If you were somebody that sold Hoover vacuum cleaners and you came to a town that didn't sell, that didn't have a Hoover vacuum cleaner store, you were you were good. You know, and and frankly. You didn't have to provide a great customer experience. You didn't have to invest in technology. Just put a few vacuum cleaners out on the floor every day and you, you were golden, you know. 
well, that's changed. That that obviously, I mean, it, it, it the internet changed everything, you know. And and since then, um, it it isn't good enough to just set up a a store and and have a few products around. So, the need for investment, the need for innovation, uh, the need to be out in front of technology now is greater than it ever has been. So, no, I I, I totally agree with your your assessment of that and you know i think that retailers need to you know get get over to that mindset that they can't just rely on their vendors anymore they can't just push this back on their vendors and say well you know you have to give me the technology i need to sell your products better because what their vendors are saying is no in fact what we'll do is we'll take the money we used to we used to waste on you and we'll just open our own stores or we'll just open our websites and we'll sell direct or we'll go to Amazon and sell direct through them. So, um, you know, it's no longer good enough for retailers to just sort of make this someone else's problem. That makes perfect sense, Doug. So, so with that in mind, um, what then should the ideal store of the future look like? What, what do you imagine it would look like? And can you walk us through a potential experience? Wow. That's a loaded question. That's a big question, it? huh? <laughs> um, so I think if we, if we follow the logic that increasingly what's happening is that media, technology, and, and, and technological mediums are in essence becoming what stores used to be. So I'll explain what I mean by that. Stores used to be regarded as places that you could go to see wide assortments of goods. You could get accurate, uh, informative product information, and you could have a purchase facilitated with relatively low friction. That's what people used to go to stores for. Uh, and, and that would have even been applicable, say, 30 years ago. That's what you went to a department store for. That is increasingly becoming the realm of media now, that when I click on an ad, I am transported now to a place online that has a vast assortment of products, more than I could ever imagine seeing in a store. I'm able to rapidly find precisely what I'm looking for within that assortment. I'm able to get far, far better information about products than I could get from a, a sales associate in any given store. And my purchase is frictionless, easy, fast, and I can have that product shipped to my door in days, if not hours now. So the realm of dominance that stores used to have, that essentially being the most convenient option, is now being taken over by media by online media. So if we follow that thinking, more and more and more shopping behavior is going to just switch over to online. So how are stores going to survive? And what does the store of the future look like? Well, in my belief, the store of the future is a media channel. And as soon as retailers start saying, look, you know, the store is not just a distribution vehicle anymore for products. It's a distribution vehicle for experiences, for experiential media. What we want to do with the store is we want to uh, envelop the consumer when they walk in and, and envelop them in a story 
a story about our brand, a story about our category. If we sell sporting goods, we want someone to feel like they've walked into a sporting world, not just a sporting goods store. And we want to uh, convey the brand story to them, talk about, you know, give them a sense of what the brand is all about, what the values are all about. We want to engage them, as we said, engage all their senses. We want to sell to them in a unique way. We want to personalize that experience somehow, allow them to co-create a product or be a part of something that they couldn't just do online. We want to surprise them, give them, you know, elements that will want, make them want to come back to the store you know, weekly or monthly, uh, but certainly, you know, something that makes them want to come back because of that element of surprise. And then ultimately, we want to treat this not just like, uh, you know, the, the, a, a traditional store that operates 14 hours a day and, and uh, we do that with a degree of efficiency. We want to treat this like it's a Broadway show. We want to lift the curtain on that store every day and absolutely blow people's minds when they come through the store. So it's, I sort of say it's like, you know, what retail is going through now is sort of like what the circus industry went through when it moved from being the old tie, the old style circus that used to, you know, um, tie, tie up bears and, you know, be, be cool to animals and have freak shows and that sort of thing. Sure. And then along came Cirque du Soleil. Mm. And instead of paying $10 to go to the circus, now all of a sudden you paid $150 to go to the circus if, if you could even get tickets for that. So, you know, retail is going, needs to go through, I think, the same transition. We need to go from being just a, a, a carnival, carnival sideshow to being a main event, to really being a production. Well, Doug, thank you for joining us today. This is this has all been like little snippets and um, consumable bits of insight from your book highly recommend though you know those let, that are listening take a take a read for sure but you know really appreciate your time today my pleasure thanks thanks to both of you oh you're welcome you're welcome and to the audience if you want to know more about retail profit or any of doug's work or his new book you can head on over to retailprofit.com. you can also find doug on twitter at retail profit and doug to, uh, to our listeners, are there any upcoming appearances, engagements, interviews, things like that that you'd like to let the, uh, the listeners know about? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a busy summer. Uh, I'm going to be in uh, Nashville, uh, Tennessee at the uh, Music Merchant Association uh, doing a, a talk with them. And then uh, uh, through August going on a five-city tour with Adobe. And then down to Sao Paulo in September and Whoa. Dubai in October. So uh, all over the place. Uh, if uh, folks want to follow me at at Retail Profit on Twitter, I usually give people a heads up of where I'm going or where I am. So hope to meet your your listeners there. That's awesome, and we hope that any any plane rides you have uh, do not have any duct tape. <laughs> so well, yes, yeah, so visible. Do I. visible of course. <laughs> I'll bring my own my own extra roll of duct tape with me, just to be safe. Thanks, uh, thanks, Doug. And that's the show, everybody. If you have any questions, comments, feedback for us, or of course for Doug, we're happy to relay to him. You can email us at brickdatacast at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and most of your favorite podcast apps. And until next time, take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>